We are in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 10, the verses that Mike just read, starting in verse 22. There's a lot really here, but we're going to focus in on really the main thing that Jesus is saying. He's going to bring up something that in some ways has been a point of theological debate for centuries, this idea of being secure in the Father's hands, this idea of once saved, always saved, versus the idea of losing your salvation. But before we do that, we're going to lay a little context, uh, just kind of help us understand where Jesus is. So we just re- read that this is the, the time of the Feast of Dedication. It was wintertime, which we can relate to that. It's wintertime outside. But this Feast of Dedication is not an Old Testament feast or festival. So if you read the Old Testament, you're not going to find it because it wasn't there. It actually didn't come up until about 160 B.C., um, after the last book in your Old Testament was written. Uh, and it came about a time when the, the temple was being restored. And so they uh, used this feast to celebrate the restoration of the temple. Uh, and they called it this feast of, of celebration, or the feast of restoration or dedication. Later on, it became the Festival of Lights. In modern day Jewish worship, it's Hanukkah. And so it took place about December every year in wintertime, this celebration. Now, it's important because that lets us know where we are in the time frame in relation to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It's about two months away. So we know that we're getting close to uh, the end of Jesus' earthly mission. Uh, the cross is just some short time away. We also know, and we'll see this today, that this is the third time in the Gospel of John that there has been a plan to take Jesus' life. Okay, so this is not the first time this has come up. Uh, when we read that the Pharisees are out to kill him. Now that helps us because it helps us understand the nature of their questions towards Jesus. When they ask him, Jesus, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. So that word Christ is synonymous with Messiah, the promised one, the one from the Old Testament who would come to not just restore the temple, but to restore God's people and to overcome all of God's enemies. And so they're asking Jesus to say it plainly. Now, here's what's important to understand why they're asking for this. It's not because they are inquisitive and they want to know. You'll notice that all the times where Jesus' life is in jeopardy and the Pharisees are trying to trap him and kill him, there's, there's usually a, a feast going on, which means there's this gathering of a lot of people and they're trying to get Jesus to say something in a public setting so they have plenty of witnesses to convict him and to put him to death. Let's say they want him to just say yes, so then they can follow up with blasphemy, arrest him, convict him, and kill him. That's what they want here. Okay, And so here Jesus is, and his response to them is, what do you mean tell you? I've already told you. He says, I've already told you this. And not only that, my, the works of my life that I do in my Father's name, they bear testimony about me. You're not really wanting the answer to that question. All you want is for me to give you ammunition to use against me. Now this is important because earlier on in this chapter, as we read last week, Jesus tells this same group of people, guys, listen, I'm going to lay my life down for my sheep but it won't be on your terms. I will lay it down and I will take it up again. Nobody's going to take it from me. And so here we are just a couple of months from the cross. We know that Jesus is already looking to that point in time and he's saying to them, guys, not today. It's not going to happen today. Now what is really interesting, what we're going to focus on is what Jesus says next. Starting in verse 27, he goes back to the sheep and shepherd analogy He again reiterates who it is among the crowd who are genuinely his sheep versus the the pseudo sheep or the fake sheep and the fake shepherds. And he says again in verse 27, my sheep 
hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here's how you know who my sheep are. They hear my voice, and more than that, they respond by what? Believing and following. So you'll be able to tell who my sheep are by the ones who follow me. Then he goes on to reiterate the promises that he has for his sheep. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a pretty big promise. Now think about it. He's toe-to-toe with the Pharisees right now. right? He's up against his primary adversaries. When he says this to them, he's speaking to them saying what? You're not going to steal any of these sheep from me. You'll know who they are. They hear my voice. They follow me. And oh, by the way, don't even try because you cannot snatch them out of my hand. Now, lest we think he's simply talking in earthly terms, look at what he says next. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and for this the Jews then pick up stones again to stone him or to put him to death. So this brings up this theological topic of the security of our salvation. Also labeled perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. And if you've been in church for any time, this has probably come up. And and you may have even been taught one way or another. So there's one side of the debate that would say, based on this passage and others, that once you're saved, you're always saved. Nothing that you can do will change that. Okay, And that's perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. And then there are those who would say, well, yeah, that's true, unless the sheep decide to jump out of the hand, then they might lose their salvation. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two different passages in the New Testament, one that might support one view and one that might support the other to try to make sense out of what Jesus is saying here. We want to know, what do you mean when you say that no one can snatch the sheep out of the Father's hand? Now, if you've never thought about this, I hope this opens up a new perspective on who God is to you. And if this is something you've thought about and wrestled with, I hope today will be helpful to you and for you. But let me just offer up a piece of advice for all of us. One of the mistakes that we most frequently make when we read the Bible that leads to misunderstanding and therefore a misunderstanding of theology is the idea that the Bible is somehow primarily about us. The idea of theology is the study of God, not man. And so one of the mistakes we make is if we put man at the center, which is what we tend to do, we'll get get a, a skewed theology, a skewed understanding of who God is. So I'll just give you an example that I think works really well. Uh, A familiar parable uh, that that you're probably familiar with from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is teaching, and he says, let me tell you a story about this dad who had two sons. And one of the sons is like an obedient son. He always does the right thing. But the other son is like a spoilt brat, rebellious. Matter of fact, he comes to dad. He's like, hey, dad, I want all my inheritance now. And you guys know the story. He goes out and squanders the inheritance. And then he comes back hoping to receive crumbs off the table, off his father's table. And his dad will receive him back into the home as a servant. But the dad doesn't. The dad welcomes him back home as a son. And we know that parable as the parable of the prodigal son. Isn't that how we label that story? And see how we make man the center when it's actually not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the loving father. That's the part that should catch us off guard. Not the prodigal son. We're all prodigals. Like we should read that story and go, that makes sense. That sounds like me. That sounds like you. We're all the prodigal sons. What should catch us off guard is the the fact that the dad welcomes the, the prodigal son back into his home. You see how the story's about God and not us? 
It's the story of the loving father. And so when we do that to the scriptures, we tend to miss who God is and therefore misinterpret who he is. And I just want us to have that in mind as we look at what Jesus is saying, because the focus is not the sheep here, it's the hand. The focus is not what the sheep are doing or not doing. It's what God can do for the sheep. I give them things. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And so with that in mind, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 6. So when we get into this discussion about our eternal security, there is this, this understanding that we can lose our salvation or there's a belief that we can lose our salvation And most of the people who believe that would point to Hebrews 6 as a primary text for that teaching or that understanding. So we're going to go to Hebrews 6 together. Now I'm going to refer to the author of Hebrews 6 as the author of Hebrews because we don't know who the author is. Yet the scriptures themselves are inspired and infallible and it's part of the fullness of God's word. And so in verse 4 we read this, Hebrews 6. For it is impossible... In the case of those who had, have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So a couple of things that we're reading here. First of all, that it's... It seems to be um, that you can fall away, according to this text. That there are some who can taste the goodness of God and then fall away. That that's a possibility. However, clearly what is an impossibility is that if a person tastes the goodness of God, falls away, it is impossible, according to Hebrews 6, to what? To be restored again, once once again to repentance. Why? Because that would be crucifying the Son of God again which we're not super clear on what he means there, but meaning somehow we're holding in contempt this great crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. We're maybe viewing it too cheaply or or holding it too lightly is, is maybe another way to think about what he's saying here. So what's helpful is that after these verses, the author continues and uses an agriculture metaphor to explain the main, main point that he's trying to make. And so that's going to help us get our bearings on what's going on here. So we continue reading in verse 7. We read this. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end it is to be burned. So this metaphor describes the idea of a soul being watered and cultivated. And if that happens, it will grow and it will produce this fruit. But if that doesn't happen, if it's not cultivated, weeds and thorns and thistles will grow up around and it will be rendered useless. And in the end, it will be burned up. And that's helpful because that is a very similar wording to what Jesus uses in Matthew 13 when he talks about the parable of the sower. So Jesus in Matthew 13 is talking about salvation and our response to the gospel. And he points out four different heart conditions, if you will, and four different responses to the gospel. It's not just two responses. It's not either receive the gospel or reject the gospel. What Jesus says is that there are actually four different human responses to the gospel. 
And he uses the same agricultural metaphor and wording to explain this. So we'll go to Matthew 13 together. So Matthew 13, verse 3, we read, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and he sowed. Some seeds fell along the path, the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, and they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they have no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the, among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some th- sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, then after this, the disciples were like, we don't get what you're saying. So Jesus is going to circle back around and explain and unpack the parable for us. And this is really where I want to focus our time is on starting in verse 18, what Jesus says about the different heart conditions and the different responses to the gospel. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. See, let me explain it to you. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So this, this pathway, or this walkway, is a description of ground that has been walked on and packed so hard that when the seeds fall on it, it doesn't penetrate into the depths of the soil. Therefore, it doesn't take root. It doesn't germinate. It doesn't come to life. So quickly, the enemy comes and snatches it away. This idea of having a heart so hard towards the gospel that, that when a person hears it, they immediately reject it. Want nothing to do with Christ. Don't like Christ. Don't like religion. Don't like the church. Like, complete rejection. Okay? The seed does not take root at all for one second in that person's life. Rejecting Christ. But then he goes on to explain, verse 20, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and then tribulation, persecution arise on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. So this is the person who doesn't, all out reject the gospel, matter of fact, responds in a way that looks like this person believes the gospel, immediately responds with joy, like they're excited even about what they're hearing about Jesus, but because there's no roots of faith, the moment persecution hits, boom, they're gone. They fall away. And so then Jesus continues. Verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves what? Unfruitful, which once again it will die, wither, and fall away. And then, of course, the last soul, 23, and for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So, it's not quite so simple as either reject Jesus or receive Jesus. Matter of fact, there's two categories of people that are somewhere in between. And what we have to understand is that from a human perspective, it's hard to really know. Like, on on one hand, you, you might see somebody who claims to be a Christian. Their life is bearing fruit. It looks like the Holy Spirit is working. You would look at that person and say, that person is in Christ, no doubt. And you might see another person who's a diehard atheist, 
reject Christ, rejects the church, rejects religion, and lets everybody know that they are not a Christ follower. You go, well, that's easy. That person's not in Christ. But the difficulty lies in the in-between. And there are two categories of people in the in-between. Those who get super excited about Jesus really quickly and either have no roots or, right, they surround themselves with what? The concerns and the riches of the world. I think the rich young ruler would be a good illustration for this person. The person who comes to Jesus, they like the idea of Jesus. They're excited about what Jesus has to offer. I want what you have to offer. And Jesus says what? Okay, cool. Let go of all your stuff in the world. What does the rich young ruler do? He goes home sad. Why? Because he had a bunch of stuff. Right? So it's not quite so simple as on or off. Save, not save. Like from a human perspective, it's not. Now, from God's perspective, it's clear. But it's not so clear from us. And so Jesus is saying here in Matthew 13 that when the seeds of the gospel fall on good soil, did you notice the certainty of what happens? What happens? When the seeds of the gospel fall on good soil, the faith of that person takes root in what Jesus has done for them in a way that leads to trust and obedience and fruitfulness. Some 100, some 60, some 30 Fruit in my life won't be the same as the fruit in your life. We can't compare the fruit to one another. But be certain, when a person's life is rooted in Christ, it will produce fruit. And so then we begin to understand Hebrews 6, what the author's talking about, are potentially those who just get real excited about Christ. They've tasted the goodness, but they've done what? They've fallen away. Why did they fall away? Maybe suffering, maybe tribulation, maybe concerns and riches in the world. Whatever the reason is, Jesus in his parable teaches that there will be some who fall away. This is really helpful for us. We we live in a region, Fort Worth, historically known as the Bible Belt, where there is a ton of nominal and superficial Christianity. Okay? And, And it's hard. Unless you've lived in another region or in another country, it's hard to understand that fully. But if you've ever lived on the West Coast, or the Northeast, or in another country, you know that what we have here in the Bible Belt is an exception. Most places on the earth, if you are a Christian, that's an exception to the rule. It's not a normal part of the culture. You're going to stand out. Like if you live in California, Oregon, Washington State, New York State, and you profess publicly to be a believer, you're going to stand out. And more than likely, you're going to encounter persecution. And so there's really going to be a measurement of whether or not you really believe it. But it's part of our culture here in the, in the Bible Belt that everybody's a Christian. And, and you ask somebody, the question isn't if you go to church, it's where you go to church. Do you go to church? Of course I do. Where do you go? And usually a person will have a response. They may not have been there in 16 years, but it's still their church. Right? And in this culture is the idea that I grew up in church. I was like born in church. My dad was a deacon. My granddad was a pastor. My grandparents helped start the church. Therefore, I'm a Christian. That's nominal Christianity. It's no wonder that nominal Christians fall away when persecution sets in or in temptation with the riches of the concerns of the world. Right? It makes sense. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And here's why I think that. If you back up to chapter 5, the author of Hebrews is, first of all, writing to the church, and he's encouraging the church to cultivate spiritual growth and not to grow stagnant. 
He actually says, listen, guys, you are infants in the faith. And not because you just became a Christian yesterday. It's because you're continuing to, to survive off of milk. You should be on solid food by now. And he explains, he says, listen, you should be teaching the word of God by now. But like an infant, spiritual infant, you're still just consuming, consuming, consuming. And so what he's calling the church to is to grow spiritually, to cultivate spiritual growth within the context of the church. And I think what the author of Hebrews is warning about is nominal Christianity. Even those who have heard the gospel and tasted the goodness, but have not, their lives are not taken root in the work of Christ. They're excited about the idea of Christianity in the church and maybe you're super involved. But what's going to happen in the end? Their souls will wither. They will fall away and in the end be burned. I think what the author of Hebrews is doing is trying to draw a line in the sand and say, listen, if you're in Christ, you're going to be growing. Your life will be producing fruit. Quit saying you're in Christ and staying stagnant. Move. Grow. Yearn. Cultivate. I think this is what Jesus is getting at in the parable. Yes, there are those who are clearly in the kingdom, those who are clearly not, but there is some in-between. Those who would want you to think they're in Christ. We know this as hypocrisy, pseudo-Christianity, nominal Christianity, superficial Christianity. It brings us back then to the question, what is Jesus getting at here when he says that no one can snatch his followers, his believers, his sheep out of the Father's hands. Now we could go to a lot more places in the Bible to build out this theology and our understanding here. And, and for the lack of time, we're not going to do that today. I do want to go to Ephesians chapter 1 for just a moment because there's a few verses here that describe what happens to our souls when we hear and believe the gospel. This is what the author, this is Paul speaking as he writes to the church in Ephesus. Just two verses here, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. He says this, In Him, that's Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. It's not enough just to hear it. It's not enough just to get excited about it. You have to believe it. And believed in Him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So what Paul is saying to the church, to Christians, when you heard the gospel and you believed it, God did a sealing work on you. It's the, the idea of the signet ring, sealing you with authority, but it's not a signet ring. It's the Holy Spirit Himself that seals us for the day of redemption, that keeps us, that guards our salvation, as Peter would describe it. Our salvation, which is imperishable, unfading, kept for us in heaven. Who is that kept for? Those upon which the gospel fell and their hearts were good soil. And they believe and they follow and their lives are cultivating spiritual fruit. I think Jesus and the author of Hebrews are teaching the same thing about falling away. Those who would appear to be saved then fall away are those who have heard the gospel and responded, again, nominally or superficially. And then this has been later revealed. How? By their walking away from the faith. However, the seeds of the gospel, when it, the gospel falls on good soil, the faith of that person takes root in what Jesus has done for them. Their lives are sealed by the Holy Spirit in such a way that it invokes trust and obedience and following and in the end, fruitfulness. 
How much fruit? That's why Jesus ends this parable. Some 100, some 60, some 30. Don't measure yourself against one another. But trust that when your life is rooted in Christ, He will produce fruit in you. And I think what Jesus wants us to understand in John chapter 10 is our eternal security is wrapped up in Him and what He has done for the sheep. And that's the point. It's not what the sheep do or don't do. It's what the Father is doing for us. So let me just use an illustration to explain the gospel really quickly, if I could. I think there are those who approach the gospel and even approach salvation and Christianity as an option among many. It's like a person is in a boat that's sinking offshore, and they notice that their life is sinking, so they begin to look around for options. And one day they know their life is going to be done, so they've got to think about the next life. And so the boat of Christianity comes by, and they think, well, that's an appealing boat. It looks safe and secure. I think I'll jump onto that boat, or I'll swim over to that boat, or I'll ask for help to get aboard that boat. When reality, though, Christianity and the gospel is the idea that you and I are not in a sinking ship. We are 10 miles offshore, and we quit treading water a long time ago, and now we are dead floating, is what Ephesians 2 says. We are dead spiritually. And when we hear the gospel, it awakens us, it brings us back to life, and we look up to see the hand of Jesus reaching down to save us and to rescue us. Like the desperation of our situation precedes the salvation. If we just see salvation as an option among many, my life insurance for the end, my fire insurance to make sure I get to go on to a better life next, we've completely underestimated the gospel and we've completely underestimated the sacrifice of Christ and we're holding it in contempt is what the Hebrews author says. You you with me? We're making too little of, of the cross. But if we understand ourselves as spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1, and that it's only Christ who makes us alive, and we are saved by grace, by faith through grace, and this is nobody's work. Nobody gets to boast. And we understand the desperation of our situation. How in the world would a sheep ever jump out of that boat? How, would, how in the world would a, would a sheep that's genuinely rescued ever want to return back to being a dead man floating? Are you with me? And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Like, it's impossible for that person to say, you know what, mm, this ride of Christianity was great, but I want to go back to be a dead man floating. It's impossible for that person to return back to repentance because they've held in contempt the cross of Jesus. I can't fully explain that any more than what the word of God says there. But I think there is a clear promise to those who are genuinely saved. Your salvation is eternal. You're sealed. You're rescued. It's fixed. Your salvation is being guarded in heaven. It's imperishable and it's unfading is what Peter says. And yes, there will be some who falsely claim to be in Christ who aren't. Maybe even get rallied and excited for a moment. But in the end, they will fall away. So there's a couple of questions for us to think about today. And maybe this is the first time you've ever thought about this topic. Or maybe you've been wrestling for, this, for years with this topic. Either way. I think for the person who leans too heavily on once saved, always saved, there's this propensity towards complacency and laziness. I got my bus ticket. I'm going to sit in the back row of the bus and ride this thing out, and then I'll, then I'll step into heaven and everything will be good. And the author of Hebrews is like, whoa, 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 warning. We've got to cultivate some things right here. If you're in Christ, you're going to be growing. Water and cultivation is going to lead to fruitfulness. That's what you're supposed to be doing while you ride the bus to the end of your life. There are those who maybe land on the other side and say, no, 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 you can lose your salvation. And so life is always turmoil. 
You're always second-guessing yourself. I was speaking to a believer in the, after the last service. Like I just constantly find myself in anxiety and fear, doubting and doubting and doubting and doubting. There's no security. Well, that mindset is rooted in the sheep. It's rooted in what you can do for yourself. And I think what Jesus is saying to both here through Hebrews, through Matthew 13, through John 10, come to me. My sheep are the ones who hear my voice. They listen. They follow. Follow me. And we're going to produce some amazing fruit. So I want to just leave you with a couple of questions. What is the difference between being associated with Jesus and following Jesus? Just think about that. Those who are the rocky soil, those who are among the thorns, they're associated with Jesus. What's the difference between being associated with Jesus versus trusting, believing, following Jesus? And then secondly, just want to encourage you to think about anything going on in your life right now. Like, what are you doing right now to cultivate spiritual growth? Are you sitting in the back of the bus with your eternity ticket, just riding this thing out? Are you doing something to participate in the supernatural work God is doing? Like, the spiritual disciplines, studying the scripture, memorizing scripture, praying, fasting, worshiping, fellowship, discipleship, growing in community. Regardless of which way you land theologically, like our lives are meant to be a lifestyle of living on mission for Christ. You with me? Like not to assume, especially here in the Bible Belt, that everybody's saved. What awakens a person to the desperation of their situation? The gospel. That we would be faithfully living on mission, looking for opportunities to share that gospel with anybody we come encounter, anybody we encounter or come in contact with. So I want to leave you with those questions to think about, the difference between being associated with Jesus versus being a true follower, and that's just for you to wrestle with. I want to leave you also with the question of what are you doing right now to cultivate that spiritual growth that the author of Hebrews is talking about, that we would go from infants on into spiritual maturity. Let's pray together, and our worship team is going to come up. As they come up and as I pray, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've never heard the gospel and believed, I want you to know that, yes, we are all prodigals, but the good news is that God is a loving Father and He welcomes you into His household. Even before you leave here today, you can be saved by trusting in the work that Christ has done for you. So I'm going to encourage you to make that decision. I'm going to pray for you. and Maybe you're here today and you realize, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm just kind of in the back seat, coasting my way through life. And maybe today is kind of a warning to, to wake up and to see the desperation of your situation and to begin cultivating that spiritual growth. And so I'm gonna pray both ways. Let's pray. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel and how it awakens us to, to eternal life. We pray together for any person here who does not know you personally. Today they would hear your voice they would believe and they would follow. They would trust in the work you've done for them and be saved. God, for the Christians in the room, I pray, God, that we wouldn't be so secure and so complacent that we just coast through life. But also pray that we also wouldn't be so stricken with fear and doubt and anxiety and, and insecurity that we're constantly trying to work to make you happy. But God, that as Christians, we would understand that when our lives are rooted in the gospel, we are secure eternally. And our life mission is to participate with you, the work you're doing in our hearts and our lives, that we would grow from infants into adults, spiritually speaking. 
Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would move among us now and do this powerful work and pray it in the name of Christ.